Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of pathology in cancer with Dr. Angelique Levi. Dr. Levi is an associate professor of pathology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Angelique, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. So as a pathologist, I am anatomic and clinical pathology trained, so both APCP for short, um, and have received fellowship training and boarded in cytopathology, a subspecialty of uh, the discipline. Um, I have also received some extra training and expertise in GU pathology, um, all of which I did way back when at Hopkins. Um, and it's uh, a combined program if you do both anatomic and clinical pathology. Um, used to be five years, now is four, but you can do one of the two disciplines uh, for a little less time now, three years. And the anatomic focus is mostly on the um, study of tissue and working with a microscope, fluids and cells, whereas the clinical pathology focuses a bit more on laboratory testing, um, uh, blood tests, for example. So let's dive a little bit more into that. I mean, when we think about um, the role of pathology in cancer, automatically our brain kind of goes to, oh yeah, it's the pathologists who kind of look at the biopsy and tell me whether or not I have cancer. Can you flesh out a little bit more about what it is you do and how you come up with that answer? I mean, everything hinges on what you say. Um, how much pressure is that and how do you actually come up with the correct diagnosis? Well, it's certainly um, a team uh, from the very beginning. So um, a patient will go to either a hospital or a physician office and will have a procedure done. So the procedure could even be um, either a pap test, screening test uh, for cervical cancer. It could be a fine needle aspiration of a breast mass, or it could be um, a surgical procedure in the operating room where, you know, a a tumor or an organ is removed. So all of those uh, tissues come to the lab um, from those scenarios. And in the lab, the um, histology component is where um, that tissue is transformed into um, a, a medium where it is put onto a glass slide. And that process itself is um, quite uh, intense. We have pathology assistants who help in the gross examination of these tissues when they come to the lab, especially the larger ones, where they may note um, sizes of lesions, they may sample uh, areas that are critical, close to margins, etc. And those sections are then submitted in cassettes and processed in a automated lab uh, in a way that they are sliced and stained and put on glass slides for pathologists to then review. Um, at the time of a 
case review and community practice. It's, you know, often just a pathologist, but here at academic centers, we have uh, trainees, residents who are involved in that process. We have uh, many sets of eyes that um, we call preview slides. And then the pathologist sits down at a microscope to sign out. Um, that's actually transforming as well. Soon we might say um, we don't sit down at a microscope to sign out, but we may sit at a computer screen if uh, we transform uh, into the digital uh, era, but we're not quite there yet here. Um, those glass slides and the examination of that tissue then with a microscope um, is where we really do what we were trained to do. And you use your trained eye to um, look at the morphology of the tissue and see um, where it differs from what you have trained yourself to know what's normal. Um, so identifying what's abnormal disease and in that then deciding whether it's cancer or not. So not every disease is cancer, and it's important in some cases where the presumption clinically might be a mass because of cancer. It's a really important piece to be able to say, um, this isn't cancer, and so therefore no treatment is necessary. Um, but at a cancer center, many of the referrals that come here are often um, perhaps already with a preliminary diagnosis on a small biopsy of cancer. And then our job sometimes as pathologists in a larger procedure or resection is to um, then go ahead and stage that, which means assign some more parameters around that diagnosis. So not only is it um, cancer, but it's um, a type of cancer that you, you want to kind of classify. Um, it's given a grade, as we call it, well differentiated, poorly differentiated. Um, it might be given certain other parameters regarding size or margin. Different cancers have different parameters that are important. And all of those details are important in prognosis, prediction, and then treatment, and usually um, associated then with outcome. So I want to pick up on a, on a few things that you said there. So one was this whole process that, that really goes on that many people who have never stepped into a pathology lab might not know about, which is, you know, when you have a biopsy done and your surgeon, your radiologist, whoever has done the biopsy sends that specimen away, oftentimes it's the greatest amount of patient anxiety waiting for that result to come back. And sometimes that can take a few days. Um, but there is all of this pre-processing that needs to go on. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how long these biopsy results can sometimes take and why it's important to really um, be patient and wait for your pathologist to give you the right answer? <laughs> because as you say, so much of, of treatment really rests on what the pathologist says. Absolutely. That pre-analytical phase that you're talking about is a big part of our, our processing, quote, in the lab. And um, that's kind of a traditional laboratory setting where, you know, pathologists, when we talk about, oh, where do you work? You work in the lab. Well, no, we actually work mostly in our offices, but much of what's happening before we even see that glass slide is happening in the laboratory. We have um, a specimen that may come in and um, an accessioner is the first uh, person in the laboratory that basically does the patient registration that assigns um, that 
uh, specimen a unique number. Every specimen in pathology is assigned a unique number, and that's how we identify it. Um, all the patient information, clinical identifiers are then entered. And that's a really important step um, in terms of um, specimens being identified properly and assigned to the right person. Um, that is the first thing that happens. Um, the next step, it goes to um, the gross uh, histology bench. And so for small biopsies that are cores or maybe liquid or a pap smear, just single cells, fixation is something that doesn't take um, as long. So fixation is something that happens um, in, in different chemicals, alcohol and um, or, or formalin. Now, when these tissues are larger, as in the case of a a large tumor, a resection, or a large organ, that fixation process can happen um, over a 12-hour period, sometimes overnight. So, for example, a prostate um, that is removed uh, whole or a large breast excision, those are examples of tissues that take a long time to fix in formalin. So, before those sections can even be taken to embed in those paraffin blocks. That process has to happen, and it's critically important for that process to happen and fix well because these tissues need to be um, able to be examined and sectioned in a way where the margins and all of those uh, distinctions between things that are critically important for patient care, whether the person gets radiation or not, uh, is the margin positive? Those delineations are critically dependent on that fixation step. And uh, that step is where we really need to wait and we can't rush it. So we have some technologies, you know, microwave assistance and other things. But in, in that process, there are still very manual um, pieces that, that take time. Um, and then by the time that slide comes out, if the surgery was on a Monday, that glass slide may not even come to a pathologist's desk until the following afternoon. And if that following afternoon is the first time a pathologist is looking at a, a cancer, um, whether it's a complicated case or even a, a, you know, a standard um, morphologic diagnosis of, let's say, breast cancer, there are still additional tests that will have to get done. And so those tests will include immunostains and other markers that are all very important that need to be included in the report, um, in the initial report. So a lot of those um, those markers are things that we have to then order. And again, it's another day or overnight processing. Um, and so these, each of these steps requires kind of another decision and potentially another test or stain or molecular marker, for example. Yeah, so so important for people um, not to rush the pathologist because, um, as I as I tell my patients, you know, everything rests on on what they say. But having said that, you know, many people nowadays are talking about second opinions, either second opinions from their clinician, but also getting their pathology that may have been reviewed at one institution, re-reviewed at another institution. So, for example, if they get a second opinion, their outside pathology is often re-reviewed. So can you talk about the importance of that and how often do pathologists disagree? I mean, are these diagnoses things that are black and white, that it's pretty crystal clear when you see a cancer that it's a cancer? Or are there some nuances that allow for some variability in terms of pathologic opinion? 
I'll start by saying um, second opinions are, uh, in any scenario, are always a good thing. I think for another set of eyes to take a look at um, a cancer case uh, is is always good. And, and in the vast majority of cases, a, conf- a confirmation is what you'll find, the confirmation of the original diagnosis. Um, it becomes more important in certain scenarios. So certain cancers um, have require subspecialty training that not all uh, pathologists have. So, you know, where you practice, where you've trained and what you've um, become an expert in really does matter. And standards are different for different places in the community setting. Um, while there's very high standards of care there, they may not always see all of the um, unique, rare tumors that we might have um, in a tertiary academic center. Um, Whereas in an academic center like Yale, we would be able to kind of explain a bit more if there are nuances to a tumor. So black and white, yes, cancer or not in the vast majority of cases, but for challenging cases, I think second opinions are definitely helpful with um, expert review and consensus um, daily conference is something that is part of Yale's um, routine, not always in all practices. Yeah. So, so important to kind of understand the nuances of pathology. We're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the role of pathology in cancer with my guest, Dr. Angelique Levi. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where a dedicated team approach is used to diagnose liver cancer early when treatment is optimal and new, more effective treatments are being developed. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org slash liver. Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE II trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Angelique Levi. We're talking about the role of pathology in cancer. And Angelique, you know, one of the things that you mentioned before the break that I was interested in is that you said, you know, we are getting close to a time when pathologists might not be looking down the microscope anymore. They might be looking at a computer screen. And that brought to mind this whole concept of digital pathology and potentially the role of artificial intelligence in helping pathologists make that diagnosis. You you talked a little bit before the break about some of the nuances. Can you talk a little bit about um, 
where you see digital pathology and the role of AI kind of playing into pathology as we move forward? Absolutely. So the the um, landscape is already changing, um, and the um, the field is rapidly evolving. And pathologists, I think, are definitely stepping up and um, wanting to not just join this uh, era of digital um, and artificial intelligence, as you say, machine learning, um, but but hopefully also uh, take a role in leading um, that charge. And for pathology, there are so many potential applications as with everything. Uh, AI is everywhere. We don't necessarily appreciate it from our phones and our apps or from many of the interfaces we do each day, but it's a tool no different than um, you know, for pathology, maybe an immunostain, a molecular marker, or genetic profile. And, you know, how we use that tool is largely dependent on, you know, what, what help or guidance a particular practice might be looking for. So, you know, one example of AI in pathology, as you uh, mentioned or alluded to, would be, you know, help in making a diagnosis or, you know, um, grading a tumor. So, an area of um, uh, study that I um, have pursued in GU pathology and prostate cancer. This is a, a common um, uh, application now, and um, there are uh, already software companies um, that are promoting AI programs and software that can um, reliably help predict grades or Gleason scoring of prostate cancer. Um, but it's not that simple. Um, you know, depending on the cancers that might be um, seen in a given institution, whether it's, you know, more common, lower grade, or in a tertiary care center, much more complicated, higher grade, you know, algorithms are, are kind of taught to answer a specific question or grade. So if you're looking for um, well-differentiated prostate cancer, three plus three Gleason score, that might be one training set. Whereas if you're looking for high-grade prostate cancer um, that is, you know, amenable not to resection, but further treatment, that might be another training software kind of algorithm. So it so much depends on the question being asked. And it's not just help in grading, but it could also just be help in detection. So different programs can be taught how to do um, different tasks. And um, another program might be in a better setting for community practice, maybe not to miss cancer as much as, um, you know, focusing on the grade because, you know, detection and preventing false negatives would really be the key kind of perhaps in a community setting with a lower cancer rate, whereas at the tertiary setting, um, something that would be more helpful is perhaps uh, an AI software algorithm that not just um, helps with detection or grade, but maybe with prognosis. And that's really the key kind of trying to discern what this AI can help with and how we'd like to apply it. Yeah. So, so, you know, kind of tailoring the solution to the problem. But one of the questions is, 
Um, is this are these technologies in use now? So, and is there a way for patients to know whether a particular pathology department is using that or not? So, for example, if I just had a biopsy at a at my community hospital, um, and I want to make sure that they didn't miss a cancer. Should I expect that they have that kind of technology that can help the pathologist? And if I'm not sure, is there a way to find out? So uh, there's always a way to find out. And certainly just calling that pathologist on the bottom of the report would be the first um, step. The, um, you know, the hospital or wherever um, those procedures are done would certainly know within the department. Um, I would say we're, we're still on the cusp. I don't think that this um, is in, in a place where we can expect to see it. I think um, right now in tertiary care centers, there are many kind of uh, testing and research scenarios, and the, these are kind of all kind of sprouting up now. And, and it's it's not to be expected, I would say, because it requires so much investment and infrastructure. And so that we can't quite expect until the costs of these um, programs and, um, you know, whether it's cloud-based memory or machine or human time, we can't expect that to all be um, here now. I, I would say, um, you know, in the future, five to 10 years, 10 to 15 years, I think then we can start to see where um, where these applications are best suited. Um, I imagine with all of this uh, investment, it would probably be helpful as a QC measure. You know, there are always reimbursement codes for um things that are additive, whether it's a stain or whether it's IA-assisted. So I imagine um, in the future, it would also be part of a report. And so, you know, we're not there yet, um, but it does take a lot of time, infrastructure and, and money, frankly. And so until those costs come down or those partnerships are, you know, established, things may be commercially available, no different than um, uh, uh, machines at a price that is affordable for, you know, hospitals and, and uh, hospital systems to to own, I think we can't expect it yet. Yeah. You know, the other thing that that is is here now um, more and more in the cancer world is this whole concept of personalized medicine. And so many clinicians are really now trying to unlock and understand the genomics of cancers. And we've certainly had guests on this show who talk about doing stains that that look at a number of different uh, genetic and genomic uh, mutations that actually um, help in figuring out how a particular tumor may be treated. Is that done at the local pathology lab? What's the role of the pathologist in that? How do you decide um, which of these markers really needs to be done? What's the cost? And, and is that standard of care or is that something that patients need to really individualize? So local, um, at the local level, I, I don't think it's necessarily standard of care. Um, I certainly immunostains, yes. Um, certainly, you know, certain markers that are common 
and to lay uh, folks would be, you know, we talk about estrogen and progesterone receptors for breast cancer, for example, um, ERPR and certain molecular markers. I think in um, community practice, uh, the the idea is to partner often with um, you know another lab whether it's a tertiary center or a commercial lab that offer those tests because they are not able to have access to all of that in-house. And so, um, you know, a, a lab like ours comes into play where if we have something to offer, um, we can partner with other network hospitals, community hospitals, um, even other labs that might not have the same volume we do in a cancer center to provide all of these highly specialized tests that without a certain volume, you, it's not affordable to run. So I think the same thing holds for um, additional molecular assays, panels, um, genetic profiling. Those are highly specialized um, areas and fields um, that, that without partnering with another kind of tertiary care center or larger lab specifically geared towards that, I think it's not to be expected um, at the, the local level. So are the decisions about what additional tests need to be done, so additional molecular tests and so on, EGFR, VEGF, uh, various mutational panels and so on, are those decisions made by the pathologist, by the treating clinician, by a group? How are those decided? Right. So I think at the community level, the oncologist drives a lot of that because the oncologist sees um, on that leading edge what the um, potential drugs that are available that are targeted to uh, a particular molecular change. And so in, in I feel in the community setting, I think the oncologist takes that role more so in asking a pathologist, um, hey, we there's a new drug and it targets this molecular marker. Is that something you do in your lab? Oh, if you don't, you know, is it something we can send out for? And then, you know, the pathologist facilitates that. That. And so um, that I think that happens more on, on the community side, whereas I think in the tertiary care setting um, like here, I think it is a bit more of a uh, collaborative effort because uh, there are there there are the pathologists here who are doing those genetic tests. And so we also have um, our tumor boards that while they happen outside um, at the community level as well, I think in a cancer center, the tumor boards really are putting everyone at the table who has that subspecialty expertise. And so I think it's a bit more of a collaborative um, effort. And if there's something that um, is clinically warranted or a new drug, I think um, the pathologists here in a tertiary center are able to create um, these, these answers to some of those questions or research them, or they're already a line of research here, you know, in the department or um, collectively um, across departments. Which, which segues nicely into, you know, one of my last questions, which is, what are the exciting areas of research in, in pathology and cancer? I mean, it seems like pathology is so central to what we do. Um, are there some exciting developments that you see coming down the pike um, in terms of pathology and cancer? 
Well, I, I definitely think the um, digital pathology component and um, the artificial intelligence piece is very exciting. I think it's an, it's entirely new platform and revolution, so to speak. Um, it's something that can be applied to all of the tools that we have, and then it's a tool on its own. So what I mean by that is um, the, the ability to work with uh, digital images, whether it's radiology or a scanned pathology slide. And, and with that scan slide, um, use metrics or segmentation to um, see, ch to detect changes that maybe even the human eye can't. And maybe it's not just about morphology. It's just a whole nother level of uh, detection that that piece, in addition to our molecular assays and genetic profiles, is something that can on its own be additive. And the exciting piece is when it is uh, also its own prognostic indicator. And so we're always interested in knowing more about the meaning of the cancer and, and what effect that has on outcome and prognosis. And AI really has the potential to um, help each of these um, special techniques that we use and the ability to stand on its own. Dr. Angelique Levi is an associate professor of pathology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.